Hello, 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 and hello. Welcome to another episode of Shake Wall Before Use, a show that is geared towards providing simplified medication information as well as talk about the disease conditions that these medications are prescribed for from a pharmacist perspective. My name is Osis and I'm your friendly pharmacist. This show does not intend to replace your medical provider or advisor. It is only meant to provide more medication information, more disease awareness for you the consumer and for you the the patient. As a disclaimer, I currently do not work for any big pharma, neither do I have any vested stake or stock in any medication out there. Today's episode is on diabetes. The first two episodes on Shakewell before use were centered around hypertension, and rightly so due to the cause and effect of hypertension locally, nationally, and globally. A study has shown that 70% of patients with diabetes have hypertension, hence we feel compelled to discuss diabetes on today's show. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, more than 37 million Americans have diabetes. That's approximately 1 in 10, and approximately 90 to 95 percent of these uh, Americans have type 2 diabetes. Per the International Diabetes Federation, in 2019, it was estimated that 500 million plus adults globally are diabetic. Today's episode, or this episode, will attempt to provide some insight into the pathophysiology of diabetes, diagnosis, medication therapies available for treating diabetes. Before we get started, let's address one of the misconceptions about diabetes. Diabetes is not just strictly a condition of high blood sugars, which we call hyperglycemia. No, that is just part of it. Diabetes is actually a metabolic disorder that affects fats, carbohydrate, and protein metabolism that results from a deficiency in either insulin production or insulin action or sensitivity or both. The key phrase that really defines diabetes to note is insulin production deficiencies and or inaction of the same insulin. Because insulin tells the body when to store excess glucose or excess sugar in the liver's glycogen, which is essentially your carbohydrate metabolism. Insulin, in addition, promotes the synthesis of fatty acids in the liver and inhibits the breakdown of fat in tissues, which invariably is fat metabolism, and insulin facilitates the uptake of amino acids in the body, which pretty much is protein metabolism. When we look at how sugar or glucose is produced in the body, there's two main processes. One is from absorption from food that we eat. So when you eat, it's broken down and sugar or glucose is produced, which we typically will call postprandial glucose. It's also produced from the liver. Glucose that is stored as glycogen in the liver can be released from the liver into the bloodstream, which we typically would call your fasting glucose or sugar levels. 
So when we focus on treating high blood sugar or high blood glucose, we focus on those two areas. So with the postprandial glucose or postprandial hypoglycemia, the goal is to increase production as well as or increase the action of insulin. For fasting hypoglycemia, the goal is to suppress the liver's production of sugar or glucose. Certain risk factors come to play for diabetes. These risk factors include number one, family history. So more than likely, if you know father, mother, grandfather, grandmother had diabetes or has diabetes, your risk is progressively higher. Number two is obesity. People that are obese have a seven times greater risk of diabetes than or when compared to those of healthy weight. Those who are overweight have a three times the risk of diabetes compared to individuals with normal weight. Number three is physical inactivity. Number four is high risk ethnicity. Certain ethnicities possess greater risk or higher risk for diabetes. Native Americans have a 16.3% risk. Blacks have a 12.4% risk. Hispanics have 11.8% risk. Asian Americans have 8.4% risk. Individuals with pre-diabetes will develop type 2 diabetes within 10 years if not properly managed. In addition, 50% of pregnant mothers who develop gestational diabetes will develop type 2 diabetes if not properly managed. So it's very important to check for gestational diabetes during pregnancy and if present, manage appropriately post-delivery. What is pre-diabetes? Pre-diabetes is pretty much high blood sugar that is not high enough to be classified as type 2 diabetes. A pre-fasting, a pre-diabetes is a fasting blood sugar level of anywhere from 100 to 125, or an A1C level of 5.7% to 6.4%. Certain medications can increase blood sugar. So if you're on a medication like steroids, for example, hydrocortisone, prednisone, these medications tend to increase your blood sugar level. If you are on antipsychotic medications specifically, the second generation antipsychotics like clozapine, olazapine, quetiapine, risperidone, those also can increase your blood sugar. Antihypertensives such as beta blockers, in this class you have your propranolol, your metoprolol, your atenolol, as well as the thiazide diuretics, you have your hydrochlorothiazide, your clothiazide, these medications can increase your blood sugar. Statins, medications used to treat cholesterol or manage cholesterol can increase your blood sugar. Tacrolimus, a medication that is used for patients who undergo a kidney transplant can also increase your blood sugar. Certain HIV medications, specifically the protease inhibitors, can also increase your blood sugar. Diabetes is classified into two major classes. There's type 1 diabetes and there's type 2 diabetes. For type 1 diabetes, there is an absolute lack of insulin. There's no insulin production, there's no insulin secretion, there's no insulin action. There is a genetic predisposition to type 1 diabetes. 
Environmental factors such as viral infections as well as vitamin D deficiency have also been implicated. Type 1 diabetes is characterized by early onset, so you're going to see it in teens and juveniles. And there are three classic signs of type 1 diabetes or diabetes in general. We call them the three P's, no P as in Paul. The three P's, polyuria, which is excessive urination, polydipsia, excessive thirst, and polyphagia, excessive appetite. In addition to blood vision, fatigue, round up the signs and symptoms of type 1 diabetes. Treatment of type 1 diabetes is pretty straightforward. It's insulin, 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 and um, there's also uh, an amylomimetic drug called pramletide that can also be added to therapy. For type 2 diabetes, it is characterized by insulin resistance. Now, unlike type 1 diabetes, there is production of insulin in type 2 diabetes, but the body cells do not respond normally to insulin and cannot take up sugar from the blood, resulting in excessive blood or excessive sugar in the blood. So typically in type 2, you have impaired insulin secretion for postprandial hyperglycemia, as well as there's increase in um, uh, sugar production in the liver, which is our fasting hyperglycemia. Sometimes your type 2 diabetic symptoms may be asymptomatic, meaning there are no signs to show that you're actually diabetic. You only find out when you go for your annual physical. And it used to be associated with advanced age for greater than 45 years of age, but now it is seen in children, teens, and young adults. And treatment for type 2 um, diabetes is anywhere from oral to anti uh, injectable anti-diabetic medications. How is diabetes diagnosed. So minus the signs and minus the symptoms, the three P's that I mentioned, there are lab tests that can be done. A random glucose level over 200 or a fasting glucose level greater than 126 or a two-hour blood glucose level greater than 200 as well as an A1C over 6.5% are the classic diagnosis of diabetes in addition to the signs uh, we mentioned um, previously. A1C goals, um, you know, differ based on age. So, like I said, A1C greater than 6.5 is the typical diagnosis. But for our older patients, our elderly patients, those who are healthy or those who have few chronic illnesses with intact cognitive functional status, the A1C goal is less than 7.5% with a fasting glucose level goal of 90 to 130. For our older patients with complex or intermediate chronic, multiple chronic illnesses with mild to moderate cognitive impairment, the A1C goal is less than 8.0% uh, 8 with a fasting level goal of 90 to 150. And for older elderly patients on long-term care, care or end-stage chronic disease, the A1C goal is less than 8.5% with a fasting goal of 100 to 180. Now, I have said A1C a lot. What is A1C? A1C is hemoglobin A1C, another name for glycosylated hemoglobin. And it typically would correlate to average blood sugar in a two, three month span. It's more of a retrospective study of your average blood sugar. So for instance, 
if your A1C is 9% or 10% or 11%, it correlates to a mean blood glucose level of 212, 240, and 269 respectively. I did not make that up because there is an equation for calculating estimated average glucose EAG based on A1C. That calculation is pretty much your A1C uh, multiplied by 28.7 subtract 46.7. So for an A1C of 10%, 28.7 times 10% minus 46.7 gives you 240. The one cool thing about the A1C that I really like is it helps to explain fasting versus postprandial predominance in hyperglycemia. So based on your A1C level, you can tell which, which area of the um, hypoglycemia is driving your high glucose level. So as A1C increases, it's predominantly fasting plasma glucose level. Yes, as A1C decreases, it's mainly your postprandial glucose level. For instance, an A1C of 10.2% is predominantly 70% fasting um, hypoglycemia and 30% postprandial hypoglycemia. For A1C less than 7.3, it's 70% predominantly postprandial hyperglycemia and 30% fasting hyperglycemia. This is good when you when you when you factor in the uh, the factors that influence the selection of medications to treat diabetes. There is some controversy with the A1C that I have to say or discuss because studies have shown that for non-Caucasians and ethnic groups they have slightly higher than normal baseline A1C. So when A1Cs were compared across the spectrum based on, um, based on race for pre-diabetes uh, pre patients, um, it was found that, that um, Caucasians averaged 5.78% A1C, but Blacks were at 6.18%, um, Native Americans were at 6.12%, Asian 6%, Hispanics 5.93%. And this variation is not based on glucose levels, but just how glucose attaches to red blood cells. So hence, there was a call to have a higher general A1C target between 7 to 8% in 2018. And the reason why I say this is, if you're being diagnosed as pre-diabetic and you're black or Native American or Asians or Hispanics, and your A1C is around 6.18% to 5.93%, you might want to look at you know, um, your A1C closely and, and determine if you're really pre-diabetic or not. In addition, for all diabetic patients, it's always important to get some adjunctive care. So it's good to get your pneumococcal vaccine, um, get your hepatitis B vaccine, and get your annual flu vaccine, and also, be mindful of how you walk, you know, avoid walking barefooted. Foot care is very, very important. When you cut your toenails, cut them straight across so that you don't get yourself injured. When it comes to medication management, according to the American Diabetes Association, guidance um, for treating, hyper, treating hyperglycemia with medications, the goal is to start um, lifestyle modifications um, for A1C is less than 9%. And then start monotherapy with metformin. If it's over 9%, to start dual or triple therapy. 
and it's over 10% to combine injectables uh, for treatment. Seven factors influence the selection of medications for treating diabetes. And these um, factors are very, very important to be considered for each individual patient, such as mechanism of action. Is the focus on postprandial hyperglycemia or is it fasting hyperglycemia? Contraindications. Does the patient have heart failure, GI disease, are they, are they overweight? Comorbidities, do they have you know, um, cardio, cardio, cardiovascular risk uh, while they are diabetic? Side effects, long-term safety, you, know, you have to look at hypoglycemia as caused by the medication, weight gain, fractures, you know, um, congestive heart failure. Efficacy of the medication. Do you want a quick reduction in A1C? Do you want cardiovascular protection? Do you want weight loss along with the management of your blood sugar? Ease of use. Do you want oral therapy versus injectable therapy? Do you want daily therapies versus multiple times a day therapies? What's the dexterity with handling pains, needles, and vials? Those should come, um, come into uh, consideration when um, selecting medications for um, lowering glucose uh, in the body, as well as cost. You know, cost plays a, a very huge role in selection of anti-diabetic medications. Are you choosing cost effectiveness versus cost benefit? So as we get into the medications for managing diabetes, I would like to start by saying, I am going to, the first four or five medications have more impact on uh, postprandial hypoglycemia and the last, the last part of the medication spectra that I'm going to talk about has more impact on fasting hyperglycemia. So the first class of medications is the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors. In this class, you have your acabos and your miglitol. And the cool thing about this medication is that it only applies to people who are on complex carbohydrate. They help to delay the breakdown of complex carbohydrates into simple sugars. They do this by inhibiting certain enzymes in the stomach that break down this food quickly. So. When I say complex sugars, I mean starch, glycogen, cellulose, and they're typically found in foods like your brown rice, your pasta, your bread, your sweet potatoes, your corn. And um, as they slow down the breakdown of these complex sugars, um, the effect is mainly on postprandial glucose. They have no effect on fasting glucose. It is advised that you take these uh, medications with the first bite of a meal. Side effect includes flatulence. It is not recommended in patients who have, you know, um, gastro gastrointestinal disease such as Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. It is not recommended for uh, patients who eat simple sugar. So if you're eating just, you know, regular rice and, you know, starchy foods that are just simple sugars, uh, this would not work for you. Second class is the glucagon-like peptide 1 agonist, the GLP-1 agonist. These are also called the insulin mimetics. They tend to mimic insulin. Drugs in this class are exenatide, liraglutide, dulaglutide, abiglutide, uh, lysinzenatide, and they are all injectables. This class of medications are all injectables. They tend to facilitate the glucose regulation by stimulating insulin secretion in a, in a glucose-dependent uh, dependent manner while suppressing glucagon. So, you know, 
The more glucose there is in the body, they tend to uh, stimulate insulin production. They tend to block glucagon, which causes um, the release of glucose from the liver. Um, this medication affects both postprandial and fasting glucose levels, but it has a greater effect on the postprandial glucose levels. Compared to um, other medications in this class, liraglutide has been shown to reduce death from cardiovascular and non-cardiovascular causes. Some agents also within this class, like exenatide ER, abiglutide, and duraglutide, can be given once a week. So they tend to aid compliance because you only have to give them once a week, but they are very, very pricey. Another addition, uh, additional benefit of this class is exenatide, liraglutide, duraglutide have the best weight loss documented. They tend to decrease as much as 0.1 kilogram per week. Side effects include pancreatitis, and this drug is contraindicated for patients who have um, pancreatitis. The next class is the DPP-4 dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors. In this class of medications, you have your alogliptin, citagliptin, saxagliptin, and linagliptin, all the gliptins you can think of fall in this class. These, unlike the GLP-1 um, agonists, these are all oral medications, and they act by blocking the breakdown of GLP-1. So GLP-1 agonists, they tend to inhibit, you know, um, the glucagon production as well as they tend to um, stimulate production of insulin in a glucose-dependent manner. So DPP-4 tend to block the GLP-1 from going out of circulation. So they affect both postprandial and fasting blood glucose levels with a greater effect on postprandial than fasting. They are weight neutral and carry a low hypoglycemic risk. A side effect includes pruritus, angioedema, joint pain, and pancreatitis. There's a warning label on this DPP-4 class of medications. They should be used in caution with patients who have congestive heart failure. One cool thing about the DPP-4 inhibitors is they are given once a day, um, which also promotes uh, medication compliance. Another class of medications, and pardon my pronunciation of this, it is the thiazolidine dions. I always call them TZD. And there's only one class, uh, one medication in this class for now, it's pioglitazone. And this drug tends to increase the sensitivity of insulin as well as decrease um, liver glucose production. It affects both postprandial and fasting glucose, but the effect is greater on postprandial glucose levels. The added advantage of TZD is it causes an increase in uh, biosynthesis of lipids. So it causes a decrease in your cholesterol and causes a decrease in your triglycerides. It doesn't cause hypoglycemia, but it is contraindicated in patients who have heart failure. Another um, Side effect of this medication is that it can increase fracture risk, especially in women. It can increase water retention as well as cause weight gain. Next class of drug medication is the biguanide. And the, the, the classic example of biguanide is the one and only metformin. Metformin increases insulin sensitivity. It decreases liver glucose production. It affects both fasting and postprandial glucose, but the effect is more on fasting than postprandial glucose. It doesn't cause um, hypoglycemia. It causes weight loss. It decreases your cholesterol as well as your triglycerides, and it confers cardioprotection. Side effects of metformin includes stomach upset, metallic taste, 
lactic acidosis, anorexia, GERD, and vitamin B12 deficiency. So it's always advised that if you're on long-term metformin, you probably want to be on a B12 supplementation. Um, the, the, the guidelines state that metformin should be included in therapies for all type 2 diabetic patients if tolerated and not contraindicated. Next is the sulfonyl ureas. And classic examples include your gliburide, your glipizide, your glimepiride. These are what we call the insulin secretagogues, meaning they help with insulin secretion. Um, they affect both fasting and postprandial hypoglycemia, but the effect is more on fasting than uh, postprandial. Over time, though, patients who are on sulfonyl ureas tend to experience what in the pharmacy world we call tachytilaxis, meaning the more doses you give, the less effect you get. Side effects include hypoglycemia, and this risk is highest in our elderly patients and patients that have renal dysfunction. It also causes weight gain, and it is contraindicated in patients who have a sulfur allergy. Amongst the lots of medications in the sulfonylurea class, gliburide has been shown to have an active metabolite compared to glipizide and glimepiride, which can result in hypoglycemia in patients that have uh, kidney disease. Next class of drugs is the meglitinides. Here we have nateglinide and ripaglinide. These are very similar to sulfonylureas, except that they have a shorter half-life and they affect both fasting and postprandial with the effect greater on fasting than postprandial, but they have a less tendency to cause hypoglycemia and a less tendency to cause weight gain. Next class of drugs is the selective glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, popularly called the SGLT2 inhibitors. Medications in this class include canagliflozin, dapagliflozin, empagliflozin, and tugliflozin. These medications prevent the reabsorption of 90% filtered glucose from the urine. It only affects fasting glucose. The added effect of this class of medications is that it reduces blood pressure and causes weight loss. Side effects include incontinence, urinary tract infection, dehydration. Studies have shown that um, studies have shown a reduction in death from cardiovascular causes with canagliflozin and empagliflozin. Finally, or well, not finally, let's talk about the insulins. Insulins are anabolic, anti-catabolic hormones that affect protein, carbohydrate, and fat metabolism. There are, certain, there are different types of um, insulins. You have your rapid-acting insulin. So in this class, you have your insulin Lispro, we call them Humalog, insulin aspartate, Novolog, and your insulin uh, glulysine called Apidram. These medications start to work within 5 to 10 minutes, and they max out at 30 to 90 minutes. Second class is the rapid or short-acting short insulin. Here you have your regular insulin. It starts to work 30 to 60 minutes and maxes out in 2 to 5 hours. Next is the intermediate acting insulin. Here you have your NPH insulin, which starts to work 1 to 2 hours and maxes out in 4 to 12 hours. And then finally, you have your long acting insulin. Here you have your insulin glargine. Hello, Lancers. You have your insulin dolomere and your insulin degludec. These medications start to work 2 to 3 hours and they do not peak. And finally, we have the amylomimetics. Uh, here we have just one drug in the class, pramlitide. Pramlitide is an injectable uh, medication used in combination 
with insulin for treating type 1 and type 2 diabetes to reduce postprandial hyperglycemia. It helps in hyperglycemic control and causes weight loss plus a decrease in insulin use. It works by decreasing inappropriate post-meal glucagon secretion and it slows the movement of food through the stomach and decreases appetite. Side effect includes hypoglycemia, especially when taken with insulin, also causes nausea and is contraindicated in gastroparesis. So these are the medications that are out there to treat um, high blood sugar. I also want to talk about cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And people have, you've seen this uh, synonym, ASCVD, which means atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which involves the, the buildup of cholesterol plague in arteries, and it consists of uh, disease conditions like acute coronary syndrome, ACS, peripheral arterial disease, PAD, and events such as myocardial, myocardial infarction, which is heart attack, and stroke. In these patients, patients with cardiovascular disease and diabetes, it is very, very important to add anti-diabetic medications that are proven to reduce major cardiovascular disease. Now, which medications have been shown to have cardioprotection for diabetic patients? Metformin, pioglitazone, empagliflozin, canagliflozin, and liraglutide. So, we know the medications. The algorithm for treating diabetes varies. According to the ADA, for patients who have an A1C less than 9%, start with lifestyle, lifestyle management or lifestyle changes, as well as monotherapy with metformin. Metformin has high efficacy, low hypoglycemic risk, it is weight neutral, and it costs less. Now, if after three months of being on monotherapy, your A1C target is not achieved, the algorithm says proceed to a two-drug combo. There's multiple dual therapies for for patients and doctors to consider. My advice is, you know, the, the, the therapies have to be individualized based on factors that affect the patient. You know, you know what kind of, you know, are they, are they overweight? Do they have cardiovascular risk? Do you want quick efficacy? You know, um, are they, um, do they have heart failure uh, at risk of fractures? Everything has to be considered. Metformin and sulfonylurea. This Dual therapy has high efficacy, moderate hypoglycemic risk, weight gain, and it doesn't cost too much um, to afford. Or it could be your metformin and your thiazolidine, Dion's, or TZD combination. This combination carries high efficacy, a low hypoglycemic risk. It has weight gain, but low cost. Or it could be the metformin plus your DPP4 inhibitors, which carries an intermediate efficacy, low hypoglycemic risk. It is weight neutral, but it costs a lot. Or it could be your metformin and your SGLT2 inhibitor, which carries an intermediate um, efficacy, low, hypoglyc low hypoglycemic risk, weight loss, but high cost. Or it could be your metformin and your GLP-1 receptor agonist, which has high efficacy, low hypoglycemic risk, Weight loss, but you know you pay a lot in the on out of your pocket. Or it could be metformin and basal insulin, which has the highest efficacy, but the highest hypoglycemic risk. It carries weight gain and a high cost. All of these combinations must be in addition to lifestyle management. Now, if after three months on dual therapy, your A1C target is not achieved, the algorithm says move 
to a three-drug combo. Once again, the three-drug combo is based on comorbidities of the patient. And your three-drug combo can be anywhere from your metformin, your sulfonylurea, plus either one of your TZD, your DPP4 inhibitor, your SGL2, SGLT2 inhibitors, your GLP1 receptor, or basal insulin. So, having said all of this, lifestyle changes such as intensive or Mediterranean diet, weight loss, physical activity of moderate intensity, in addition to medication therapy, are keys to managing managing diabetes. I am not a registered dietitian, so I cannot fully disclose what a Mediterranean diet entails. But I am a realist, and I understand that certain foods, certain activities mean differently to different people. It is important to discuss with a dietitian, with your pharmacist, with your medical provider, with a nutritionist to find common grounds among certain meals, among certain medications, because end of the day, your quality of life matters. I say this because people with diabetes are two to three times more likely to have depression than people without diabetes. So it is important to find common safe grounds that help each individual patient. Self-monitoring of blood sugars is a vital component to detect both postprandial and fast and fasting hyperglycemia as well as hypoglycemia. My apologies, I never mentioned hypoglycemia or discussed it in context. Hyperglycemia is low plasma sugar levels. So it, it varies from different locations. For me, hypoglycemia is your plasma sugar level less than 50. Some people have it less than 60. So it is good to know your hypoglycemia along with your postprandial hyperglycemia and your fasting hyperglycemia. Exercise is key. Exercise helps to push glucose into muscle cells and tissues. This is it on another episode of ShakeWall Before Use. ShakeWall Before Use podcast is available for download on Spotify, Amazon, Apple, Podbean, RSS, Pandora, TuneIn, and YouTube stations. Please feel free to email us with your questions and or comments to askosis at shakewallbeforeuse. That is A-S-K O-S-A ask OSIS at shakewallbeforeuse.org. Till next time, thanks for your time. God bless. Au